0: everyone. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. In today's episode, I am so excited to be talking with Bob Chapman. He is the CEO of Barry Waymiller and the co-author of a phenomenal book, Everybody Matters, The Extraordinary Power of Caring for Your People Like Family. And I have to tell you, I had no idea who Bob Chapman was, but he co-wrote it with Raj Sisodia, the co-founder of Conscious Capitalism. And so when his book came out in 2015, I pre ordered it and I started reading it, and I just remember being floored. And if you see my book, it is highlighted all over the place, it is tabbed, and I just started talking about this incredible company and this incredible leader and what he's doing to bring truly human leadership in the world. And then when I met him and got to know him, he is just such the real deal. And I love everything that he's doing and everything that Barry Waymiller is doing and what they're doing to really bring this out into the world. And so today we talk about what he's up to and really how much hurting there is in this world and how we can heal it through truly human leadership and the incredible power each of us has to really learn how to listen and what he's doing to help kids build communication skills. And it's just always, always inspiring to talk to him. And so couldn't have a better first guest on my podcast. And I hope you take away some really valuable nuggets for yourself and enjoy well, you know, what's funny is I was thinking about as we were getting ready for this, I was thinking about the first time you and I met and I remember getting an email and I think it was a contact us message on my website. And I remember thinking, am I being punked? Why is Bob chatting contacting me? And I was like, this is like a
1: speech that somebody heard in Kansas where you mentioned our story. And I couldn't believe somebody who was talking about this was mentioning mention. So uh, that's why.
0: Uh, I know. So I was like, Oh, okay. So I remember hopping on the phone. I'm like, I'm actually talking to Bob Chapman and I have his book right here. And this is really cool.
1: (laughs) So, so I would say in the journey, since I met you, which is probably six years ago or whatever it was, um, we have had nothing but affirmation uh, of this message. And, and again, it was the McKinsey people who asked me to speak at uh, uh, in Madrid and uh, and Barcelona and, uh, and then and then, St. Gallen University in Zurich. Uh, and again, if honestly, if you could see the reaction of people to this message, people cry. Oh yeah. People are hurting.
0: Yeah.
1: People are hurting despite economic prosperity in our country, you know, again, prior to COVID. Economic prosperity, we at peace in the world. You know, we weren't sending our own men. But people are hurting because they feel used and not cared for. I mean, I was on a pace to do 40 or 50 speeches this year.
0: Yeah, um, I know. I, I, I had 30 that, boom, got canceled, like in the first two every, weeks of the pandemic, yeah. yeah. So, but
1: I mean, I was on a podcast last time. Mean, I'm almost on a podcast a week someplace because somebody heard Simon's podcast with me and they wanted me on their podcast. And then-
0: The message is resonating. And I think people, you know, I mean, our book launched at the beginning of the pandemic, which on one hand seems like the worst time to launch a book. On the other hand- I think it's resonating even more for people. And I think that this whole idea of having human workplaces and human leadership and just humanity in our work lives. And I've actually talked to so many people who are um, rethinking and leaving jobs and saying, you know what, if this pandemic has taught me something, this isn't freaking worth it. Um, I want to read your 10 commandments of truly human leadership, because I just think that they're super, super impactful. And just any thoughts that you want to share around how they came to be and how you're living them as you continue to grow your company.
1: We, we actually call it the manifesto.
0: The manifesto. If
1: leaders so, are everywhere. Find them. Uh, you know, it, it
0: begins with that. Yep. Yep. So you have, at least in your book, um, you have the, the first is one, begin every day with a focus on the lives you touch. Number two, know that leadership is the stewardship of the lives entrusted to you. Number three, embrace leadership practices that send people home each day safe, healthy, and fulfilled. Number four, align all actions to an inspirational vision of a better future. Number five, trust is the foundation of all relationships. Act accordingly. Number six, look for the goodness in people and recognize and celebrate it daily. Number seven, ask no more or less of anyone than you would of your own child. Number eight, lead with a clear sense of grounded optimism. Number nine, recognize and flex to the uniqueness of everyone. And number 10, always measure success by the way you touch the lives of people. And I just love that because I'm like, if we're going to, you know, obviously our mission is to rehumanize workplaces because of the hurting and the dehumanization you talked about. And I just, I just and love gonna- that.
1: Remember, Rosie, they were, you know, in our, and the idea of those commandments came when you started having this awakening in 97, when we started having fun and we saw behavior change, dramatic behavior changes. And I don't mean human value creation and economic value creation. We just astounded because when we started trying to have games, that created value. And, um, and we said, there's something going on here. So we got together and we started talking which led to these commandments. And, you know, one of the things, if I were in your situation, trying to advise clients, you can't just embrace truly in You gotta, you know, in our, in our country, we have a constitution that all laws are founded to protect that constitution, right? And the constitution says, these are our rights. And, and the constitution is something we protect desperately to protect our free society. Well, if you don't have a constitution and you're a company trying to care, you know, what is your standard of care? And so we are blessed that we came up with this, if you will, manifesto, this, these, guide, these 10 commandments uh, and this overriding statement, we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. And so it grounds us in every decision we make. Otherwise, you're just kind of moving around and there's no, I, I'm not sure this is true, but it's an impression I have, Ronald Reagan. Everything was really simple to Ronald Reagan. He believed in the goodness of people. He started with that, and he, he was, and you know he could make really quick decisions. You know, I, I know a guy that worked, Ken Adelman, who worked right alongside Reagan for eight years. You know, Reagan and Reagan just was, everything was simple to Reagan because he was, he was founded on his fundamental beliefs, and he could go to his fundamental beliefs and make every decision. The same gentleman worked in the transition to Bill Clinton, who was very bright, road scholar incredibly, you know, good speaker, et cetera, but Clinton didn't have this foundation. He had intellect, but he didn't have the foundation to connect that to. And so the difference this gentleman shared with me, Reagan just had this basic core values that he could make every decision in line with that values. Bill Clinton was just an intellectual. So whoever convinced him lately of the latest thought, he he would go with that because he was very influenced by intellectual thinking. And whoever, you know, got his ear, got that. So we are fortunate to have that document just read because it gives us a foundation upon which to make decisions. And then we teach that foundation, just like the Ten Commandments in, in certain faith. You know, these are the commandments to which we can make every decision. You can sit down and think about, and there's a commandment that will help you make any decision. And again, our big decision in 08, 09, which was to not let people go, came from going back and reflecting for the first time because we didn't have this before. So we just did what companies did. You have a downturn, you lay off people. It's just what you do. It's not personal. Uh, but when we embrace these 10 commandments and we faced the downturn of 0809, we said, if we let people go, we're going to hurt them. Their families are going to be destroyed because there's no jobs in '89. Massive layoffs, economic disruption. So we said, well, what would a caring family do? Garrett family would all pitch in so that nobody would get hurt. So we all took a month off so that nobody would have to be let go. And that was an unbelief. But that decision was made in the context of our our beliefs, not just, gee, we don't want to hurt people. So companies need a foundation upon which they can make these decisions, like we do in our country. We need a constitution that protects us. And they need to live those values. And so even uh, I'll use the example of safety. We had a, uh, our VP of finance came to our VP of personnel some years ago and said, we got a problem with workmen's compensation claims are going up and we're gonna blow a budget. We were gonna blow the budget. That was the statement, okay? So our empowerment team member on Spencer, I think you bet, she was invited into the team to discuss this issue. Thank God they invited her in because that she said, well, let's go back to our constitution, our values constitution. If we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people, what issue are we discussing here? Are we discussing workman's compensation claims? And they ended up, after a robust discussion, with the following discussion, we don't want our friends to get hurt. Guess what happened? We had everybody want to be on the committee. Our workman's compensation claims went to half the industry norms. By a simple statement, we don't want our friends to get hurt. Not we want to reduce compensation claims. Not we need to get claims within a budget. It was driven by an inspirational message: we don't want our friends to get hurt. Okay, not not to be, not our colleagues, not our team members, our friends to get hurt. Okay, and that made people passionate about improving safety. We could have said we, you know, we want so many days with lost time incidents. We want to you know get our workers. You know, nope. It was we, we don't want our friends to get hurt. So without that foundation that you articulated there, decisions would be made on the spot based on the thoughts people had. So the first thing I always say to people is you, you need a foundation of what your values are because then you can make decision in the context of those values. Without that, you're just kind of going with the wind on, you know, okay, this is our thought here, this is our thought there, but there's no underlying And and because we had that foundation when we got to 08-09, we said, we can't let people go. We will hurt people. We can't let them go. How can we get through without letting them go? So it stimulated our thinking in response to to one of the biggest challenges you and I have ever seen, which is the 08-09 downturn. And that did more to validate our culture. We learned more about in that environment we did have ever learned. Because what happened is some of the people who were more advanced stage of life offered to take some of the weeks... Of younger people who couldn't afford to take a month off without pay, and so we had acts, uh, spontaneous acts of caring. Uh, people took that month to work at their church. People that month to go back and visit with their family. So anyway, Rosie, it's, I would say to any client I was working with, "What is your foundation? What you know? What where these? where does it come from? You know, where does it come from? And you, you've got, you've got to have a foundation to make decisions. Otherwise, you're just kind of spontaneous." was these thoughts and so well, that's like
0: simon Sinett calls it the discipline of how right you can't live yeah. your why or your purpose without the, those disciplines well, exactly so,
1: and so yeah. that foundation you got to start there and then and every decision is easier because now you go to the context of you know healthcare okay. is easier so yeah. um, anyway, Well, that's
0: even why, no, I love that. And that's even why, like in our new book, when we call these five rehumanizing principles, principle one is build a lighthouse. And it's the have a clear purpose and have operationalized core values to guide you in the dark and guide you when stuff gets tough. Cause otherwise you don't have a leg to stand on. So I just, I love that. I love that.
1: I've had a profoundly meaningful couple of days. And you're kind of an excited person. Can you handle a higher level of excitement right now, or is it? Or should I be careful with you because you know, I don't want to get you too excited?
0: <laughs> I can handle. I can handle it, Bob. It's all good. You
1: can. Okay. So, Monday. Do you, do you remember a guy's name named Bill Urey of Harvard? Do you remember yeah. that? Name? Okay. Bill Ury negotiates world peace. He wrote a book, Getting the Yes. And Simon Sinek uh, introduced Bill to us. He had Bill visit our operations, and Bill was profoundly touched. And we've developed a deep relationship for the last nine years because of it. Um, and he said what he saw at Barry Waymuler, he thought was the answer to world peace because he saw a place where people genuinely care for each other, which he thinks is the answer world peace. anyway. And he said, I realize I've been going to global peace talks for 30 years and I now realize that's exactly what they are, the global peace talks. The problem we have in the world is we teach people to debate and speak but we don't teach people to listen. So our inability to work out our differences in the world are because we don't know how to listen to each other. And so with that background and this relationship I've had with Bill, so Bill's been to several of our events in Aspen and called Massey with Simon Host and with major people from Disney and uh, Four Seasons. And uh, anyway, so, um, so Bill and I have developed a, a great relationship. And again, he's a senior professor at Harvard. He called me Monday because he is, like me, particularly concerned with kind of the state of our world right now. If you add the pre-COVID issues we had, which while we had full employment and peace in the world, we had a high level of anxiety and depression in the world, in kids and parents and so forth. So under the surface of economic prosperity and peace, there was a lot of brokenness. that we see manifested in, in many ways. Um, so Bill called me because he, like me, was concerned and you know, I hadn't talked to him for some months because of COVID. But anyway, he called me with a couple of his colleagues and said, I'm really concerned about the kind of state of our health, let's talk. And so I talked about the fact that a lot of people are talking about uh, inclusion and diversity. Uh, as the issue, and we need more African Americans or more females or et cetera at various levels, et cetera. And I was on a call with the head of Bank of America, head of Ernst & Young, uh, about ten of us talking about this. And I just said, you know, I don't measure inclusion and diversity. I go below that to the surface, which is how do we create a world where people care for each other. We don't see our differences in our color, the color of our eyes, our height, our weight, our wealth. We see the beauty in every individual when we're going to listen to them. So anyway, it was kind of interesting to hear because all the conversation was the typical. Well, you know, we're, we're kind of making sure we have the right number of African-Americans and women and minorities and Latino. You know, it's all about statistics. numbers. Yeah, right. numbers. And I just said to me, it's about caring. We just learn to care for each other. And then we won't see our differences. We won't discriminated against people with blue eyes or blonde hair or uh, uh, fat men or skinny men. You know, we will see people for their beauty because we'll see beyond their circle. So anyway, so so Bill and I have this conversation Tuesday, about an hour or so. And Wednesday morning, yesterday morning, he sent me Tom Friedman's article from The New York Times. And Tom Friedman's article is exactly what Bill and I talked about, which is for, to, to see Tom Friedman, unrelated to our discussion, uh, came out with uh, this uh, idea that, about um, the fact that what we need to do as a society to heal. Um, and he states it so beautifully. Uh, so powerfully that I started sharing it with everybody because it just seemed to capture everything we've been working on for years, which is teaching people uh, how to, how to, you know, if you will, care for each other. So again, just listen to the statement: uh, the poverty of dignity explains so much more behavior than the poverty of money. People will absorb hardship, hunger, and pain. They will be grateful for jobs, cars, and benefits. But if you make people feel humiliated, they will respond with ferocity unlike any other emotion or just refuse to lift a finger for you. As Nelson Mandela once observed, there is nobody more dangerous than one who's been humiliated. By contrast, if you show people respect, if you affirm their dignity, it is amazing what they will say to you when you ask, but sometimes it just takes listening to them, but deep listening. Uh, so, because listening is the ultimate sign of respect. What you say when you listen speaks more than your words. So here is Thomas Friedman, totally beautifully articulating something that me as an accountant can't, that is it the, and then this lady named Carol, who we're working, she's a professor she's done talks, t- 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 she read this and she said, Deep listening is the antidote to the antithesis of hum, uh, humiliation. In other words, when we listen to people and we validate them, they feel valued. So anyway, Rosie, it's, uh, it's been an amazing week. As you know, Cynthia, yeah. nonprofit where we teach for the last 10 years. We've been teaching around the country uh, at various cells, uh, United States Air Force, Charleston, South Carolina, whatever. Uh, we've taught about 11,000 people. Deep listening. We've been on this journey for 10 years. And here Thomas Friedman nails it. It just, at the same point I was making. So I ended up sending this, what I sent to you, to Brian, the, to the head of Bank of America, Doug, the head of uh, 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 Walmart, um, my Harvard associates, because to me, Tom, the issue we face is not about giving people more money. The issue we face is giving them more dignity.
0: I love that. Well, yeah, and you yeah. know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, you know, uh, you know, Brene Brown will talk about using shame, right? When someone's humiliated they've been shamed and talks about armored versus daring leadership, right? And it takes a lot of courage to just truly, like you said, deeply listen to people, right? And to lean into you don't know what they're gonna say, you're not trying to reply, you're just trying you're to not tend to debate it, you're not telling them yeah.
1: more, it's fine to to listen to them. So I mean it's it So, I mean, I've almost been hyperventilating. And then the lady that runs our nonprofit who sits right next to me, we're just saying, oh my God, you know, we just, we've been saying for 10 years that we've been out helping to treat cancer, which is the the manipulation of others for our success. But what we need, the cure for cancer is we need to go back to our education system and teach young kids listening skills so they're prepared to have relationships work at home in the community where they know how to value others and feel valued themselves and so then I get on this call this morning with a, a, a teacher one of our professors of OCL who's a, a full-time teacher at a prominent Charlotte Latin school and she's teaching high schools and she got it she starts screaming hyperventilating because she can't believe that you know it's all coming together and 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 uh, the fact that Thomas Friedman of the New York Times said it gave us a chance to, gave it authenticity. The fact that yeah. World Peace Together sends it to me after the conversation we just had, it really is powerful. So anyway.
0: No, uh, I love that. Well, boring, boring
1: week other than
0: that. No, that's super, well, and I, uh, one, I'm super excited for that. And I think that one of the, Repeat conversations that I've been finding I've been having over the last several months. Um, I've had it longer than that, but particularly during COVID, is I keep saying to people, it's a core human need, right, to feel like we matter and that we belong and to feel heard. And so when we're not listened to, when we shut people out, when we step on their words, when we offer unsolicited advice, all of those things, we're violating a core human need. And so when you look at stuff that's going on in our world. It's like, if, if you want to just help people through this, first and foremost, listen to them and help them be seen as a human being. And so I, lo- I, I love that so much. And I want to get you to speak a little bit about the nonprofit, because one of the things I love that you said is, you know, our whole premise of, our work, but also this podcast, is that everybody has an opportunity to show up as a leader. And and it starts even with our kids, right? That leadership is a behavior and it's a- It, be,
1: it begins with our kids because, It does.
0: So can you talk more about what you're doing and kind of what you're seeing? Because I love that yes, so much. Yes. So, yes.
1: So I would say to you that, remember the revelation I had started in 1997, it was a series of revelations. It was, first revelation was, why can't business be fun? Why do we call it work? Because people share their joy and their ability when they're having fun. The the second one was in church, when I realized the rector of our church was hopefully inspiring us, but he only had us for one hour a week and we have people for 40 hours a week. So we are 40 times more powerful than our faith to inspire people to be their best self in service of others. And finally, the wedding story, which is the thing that people remember the most when I realize that everybody who works for us is not an engineer, a salesman, an accountant, a receptionist, a, a production worker. there's somebody's precious child who's been placed in our care. And the way we treat that person is going to profoundly affect their health going to the Mayo Clinic and profoundly affect the way they go home and treat their spouse and their children and what their children learn in terms of behavior. Because we learn more from what our parents do than what our parents say. And so uh, we realized that we had been given a gift uh, that could profoundly change the world in terms of the way we were intended to live and work together, where we genuinely care for each other and feel cared for ourselves, and return home having been cared for, enriched by that experience, to be a better mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, community members. And so, unfortunately, Rosie, we started off with of an economy where we, def- well, let me, let me go back and share something that I think is foundational. Uh, I was asked to give a talk at Brown University to a group of university presidents from around the world, and kind of unique venue for a manufacturing guy. And so I went up to Harvard and talked to Jan Rifkin, the chair of the MBA program. I said, Jan, what's on the mind of university presidents? Or I'm sorry, what was, what's the purpose of education? And he said, the purpose of education originally was to have an informed citizenry so we can have a democracy. You can't have a forms. You can't have a democracy without an informed. That was the founding fathers' premise, and education was the way we would ensure that we had a democracy because we would inform people. Uh, but the industrial revolution gave us so. My thoughts then evolved to the education as we evolved in the industrial revolution, which created because when when our industrial um, industrial uh, industrial revolution leaders Henry Ford and others Rockefeller's. Uh, began mass production and, uh, and exporting globally. They grew dramatically and created a great deal of wealth. Okay, uh, And they didn't do mass production to give people more dignity because actually they took somebody off of a farm who was harvesting with the skills of the farming skills, put them into a factory, put it on a hubcap every five seconds, okay? and then every three seconds, and then every two seconds. Uh, we we basically needed these people. We invited into our company where we gave a good salary. They had a more reliable salary. They got benefits. They could, communities built up around these homes. But education became a uh, a feeder to the needs of our society, which were felt to be st- we need technical skills. Henry Ford needed engineers, scientists, accountants, uh, production workers. And so our education system began feeding the needs of our industrial revolution, which were skills. We forgot the human skills though. It never occurred to us that when we started running a factory that would have 500 people, that how did we teach the people who run that factory? Because the factory was about making profits. And again, if we paid people well and we give them benefits, we thought, no problem, okay? But we never learned to treat people with respect and dignity. We were never taught that our primary responsibility was those people, those men and women in our span of care that we've invited into our organization, knowing that the way we treat them was going to affect their health. Because again, the person you report to at work is more important to your health than your family doctor. And it was going to affect the way they go home and treat their own family and behave in the community. Because we thought, well, gee, because this assumption is success is money, power, and position. So why do you want to get a good education? So you'll get a good job. Well, why do you want to get a good job? So you'll make good money. Why do you want to make good money? So I can be successful. Isn't that successful? I made good money, okay? Uh, And so it was all built on the premise of economic value creation. So here we sit today, decades later, and 88% of all people feel they work for an organization that does not care about them. Three out of four people are disengaged in what they're doing. Sixty-five um, percent of all people would give up a salary increase if they could fire their boss. And we talk about the healthcare crisis, and we try to uh, manage uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies on the price of healthcare. We try to negotiate with hospitals, get the cost down. What is driving demand? We're not working on the demand side. The demand side is people. Uh, Stress is, uh, chronic illness is the biggest cause of illness, chronic, biggest cause of uh, chronic illness is stress and the biggest cause of stress is work. So I say to CEOs who are, that I get the privilege of speaking in front of all the time, you're complaining about the cost of health care. you are the problem, okay? And
0: how do they respond when you say that to them?
1: Nobody debates it. They just don't know what to do about it because they were never trained to care, they were trained to use people. As Simon Sinek said beautifully, who studied the military and business, and he wrote a lot about Barry Wimler, uh, he said, why in the military do we honor people who give of themselves in service of others? And in business, we give bonuses to people who sacrifice others in service of themselves. Why can we teach in the military Officers eat last, which means your primary responsibility as an officer of the United States Air Force, Army, whatever, is the men and women in under your care, okay? Simon says passionately, why in business school can't we teach people who aspire to be leaders in business that your primary responsibility is the men and women in your care? Why can't we teach that? We can, we do. That's what we do it very well. We teach truly human leadership. Remember, I was interviewed by Washington University organizational development professors five, six years ago. At the end of about an hour and a half interview, they said, you're the first CEO I've ever talked to that didn't talk about your product. And I said, I've been talking about our product for the last hour and a half. It's our people. I won't go to my grave proud of the capital equipment we build. I'll go to my grave proud of the people who built that capital. So, I mean, they were startled, okay? Because we talk about EBITDA, we talk about profitability, we talk about growth, we talk about growth markets, but we don't talk about the most important thing is the people we have the privilege of leading. That makes sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. One so of the million reasons I love you, because I'm like, oh, <laughs> hey. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, and again, Rosie, I, right before the pandemic, I was invited mainly by McKinsey partners, but then a few other educators to give 15 speeches in Europe in five days, which I did, from Edinburgh to uh, Barcelona, to Madrid, to St. Gallens, to uh, Zurich, to Belgrave. Everyone, it was oversold. Everyone, the reaction was exactly what you just did. They loved it. Yep. The problem is we tried to legislate, uh, you know, caring for people right government gets involved we need the government to protect the workers we need minimum wages we need all this protection why well somebody's got to protect them well if, if our universities taught people how to be leaders instead of managers because remember I've I've migrated to the point that the word management means the manipulation of others for your success leadership means the stewardship of the lives and trustees yeah. And we have, and I want,
0: I want to pause there for a second because yeah. this is so key. Because uh, I love your definition of leadership, and when you think about it, like that means that if it's the stewardship of the lives entrusted to me, that means that I can be a leader if I'm a parent, I can be a leader if I'm babysitting, I can be a leader if I'm a teacher, I can be a lead, you know. So I just and and so I, I love that. And I know that one of your kind of guiding principles is that everybody is a leader, find them. So how, right. do you, how, do you, how do you nourish that within and outside of the walls of the various Barry Waymiller companies?
1: Well, first of all, I want to say to you that we started in 15 years ago when we had this, this young man said to me at dinner and he was brand new with our company. He was in part of our empowerment team. We were out interviewing the author of a book called True to Your Roots, In California, we're having dinner and I feel we're going to meet him. And this young man said to me, uh, Bob, what's your greatest concern? Now, anybody that knows me and worked with me would never have asked me that. But this gentleman was a young man, brand new. So he asked me something because he didn't know me very well, because I'm an internal optimist. So it caused me to think. And I said, you know, Brian, my greatest, greatest concern is that we have been blessed with the leadership model that could change the world. And it will die with me hmm. and so we got up the next morning after that dinner and i said okay brian you'll we'll, you brought out to me something i didn't even know i was worried about now what are we going to do about it i said what do great religions do to survive over time they they articulate their beliefs and then they have disciples who tell stories that help people embrace those beliefs and they've lasted for generations, okay? Because the principles are so sound. So I said, Brian, we need to create disciples so it will live beyond my time. It's not Bob Chapman anymore. It is all of us. We are disciples of these beliefs. We understand them, we can articulate them and they're deep in our heart. And so we said to ourselves, well, how do you create disciples? I said, well, we gotta teach them we need to create a university because we can't send them to any of our renowned universities because we teach management. We don't teach leadership. So our team, this eclectic, fabulous team, uh, came together with a whiteboard and said, okay, how do we teach people to be leaders? And the initial idea was, because when I get on our jet, I know without a doubt the pilots have been through a discipline of making sure they have checked everything you can check, double-checked it to make sure that that plane is going to provide a safe environment for me to fly wherever I'm going. I know that. I said, why don't we create a leadership checklist? What if every leader every day challenged himself to think about what it is that he is going to do as a leader to make sure that when anybody walks in, into their air in the building, in the factory, or wherever that those people are going to be safe. So we created the leadership checklist and then we created teaching content that taught people how to use that. So that's how we began. Interesting thing, and that leads to the answer to your question, is 95% of the feedback we got from the people who took our classes was the profound impact it made on their marriage and the relationship with their children. 95%. Rarely did somebody say, I now am a better foreman in the factory. Rarely did somebody ever say, I now manage the people in the accounting department better. They they went to the most important relationship of their life, which is their kids and their spouse and their mother and their father. And they talked about how our leadership model that they were learning impacted their personal life. So that led to us to uh, realize uh, that we needed to share this. So we created the Chapman and Co. Leadership Institute, which we said, look, we're going to look for people who believe what we believe and want to join us in this journey. Had no idea what level of reception. And all of a sudden, Doug Parker, chairman of American Airlines, hears me speak at a Dallas church and he has me over and American Airlines becomes a huge client because it touched Doug's heart deeply. He was moved. It, it, it added dramatic purpose to his life of running the world's largest airline. And then uh, Meyer Food Stores with 75,000 people, a a large food retailer in the upper Midwest, they engaged us, you know, and uh, Shell Oil Company talked to us, McKinsey talked to us. So all of a sudden we have this tremendous interest of people who believe what we believe and want to join us in this journey. So we created the leadership as an outreach. And then because the foundational skill we taught people, which was David Vardaman, one of our team members idea, if we're going to teach people to be leaders, we need to teach them to listen. It would never occur to me that we need to teach adults to listen. I was against it. But as you know, a young lady in Minneapolis came up some months after this program was launched, even though I was against it. And she came up to me and said, Mr. Chapman, I just took your communication skills class. I said, well, great. What was it like? She said, it changed my life. I said, wait a second. We taught a three-day class at work can it change your life. She said, yes, I now know how to raise my two-year-old daughter, okay, which awakened me. We've got something here, which led to uh, us creating our nonprofit. We said, we've been given a gift that can change marriages, parenting, communities, or and so we created Our Community Listens, a nonprofit where we go out around the country. We have about 70 professors now around the country where we engage in communities, people in a three-day class to learn to listen to each other. And and on graduation night, when people stand up and say what it's meant to them, grown men and women sob because, A, they say, I met the most beautiful people, regardless of their color, their race, their age, their weight, their wealth. And they say how it has healed the most important relationships of their life. Just this morning, Ann Brock from Charlotte Latin was telling me, She said, Bob, you're going to cry when I tell you this. But one of my students, because she not only is a teacher at the school, but she teaches our nonprofit in the Charlotte area. Uh, She said, one of the people that took my class emailed me some months ago that because of the class, she healed a broken 40-year relationship with her mother. They'd been Mm -hmm. separated for 40 years. And because of this class, they had the ability come back together, which was profoundly meaningful. She said yesterday, she emailed me and said, I want you to know that unfortunately I found out that I have breast cancer. I've got three kids but because of that, my mother and I have healed. My mother's going to move in and help me mm. so be with me this. So I mean, Anne was crying because she said, cause she couldn't believe this class had healed a 40 year broken relationship. And that, allow them now to have this special time together in time of need. So I could give you 100,000 stories like that that would break your heart and give you hope that we can heal this world. And some of the brokenness we see in the streets and politics, it's just because we don't know how to listen and care for each other. And there's nothing governments or political parties can do that you and I can't do, Rosie, to heal that. Right. So stress and anxiety created by not feeling cared for, we could uh, dramatically heal people without medication, without doctor's visits, by simply showing them they're cared for.
0: Yeah, I love that. Well, and you know, it, it I'm not surprised. I mean, you guys do great work. I've been to some of your classes and, you know, they're, with the work we do, it's very similar, right? It's, it's all about teaching those self-awareness skills and how to listen and how to... Uh, rewrite the narratives right? That are, that are not serving you well and show up differently. And people say all the time, it's, it's, it's not about their work. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm calmer. I'm showing up better in my life. And so I just, I love, I love that there's a growing interest in this. I love that oh, you, in you know, you know, your well, paving and, way. And that article
1: yeah. for, for Thomas Friedman to say, you know, we just, we gotta listen to each other. Yeah, It's not about pay, it's not about money. It's about humility. You know, it's about, it, it's, we, we just have to listen to each other. And For Thomas Friedman to say the New York times yesterday morning, uh, which has been our mission for the last 12 or so years to awaken people that that is these, the most important human skill. And uh, remember again, I, was at, I don't know if you know this, but I would, this Charlotte Latin school, this very prominent private school in Charlotte. Um, invited me down because they'd heard of our leadership model, this private school, and they invited me down to meet with the board and the trustees and talk about it and how they could bring leadership development into the high school, which school would need. And, and they said after the discussion at lunch, would you like to visit one of our classes? Well, I said, sure, that's fine. Uh, so they walked me down and they picked a debate class. So I walk into this class, there's four young men practicing, debating skills in front of the class to go to Chicago for a national debating contest, which is great. So they said, Mr. Gemma, you're welcome to say anything you'd like. I'm glad you came in our class. So I sit there. And uh, so the four young men each had two minutes apiece to debate healthcare, Internet security. So I listened to them. They were brilliant young men. And the teacher at the end of the the debate was like 10 minutes or so said, Mr. Chapman, we'd love to have your comments. Now, he didn't know what he was asking for. <laughs> and, and I, I honestly I didn't know what I was gonna say. And Rosie, I said to him, he, so he said, what, what impressions you have? I said, well, first of all, those are incredibly bright, talented young men. But I just saw what's wrong with this world. And he said, what? I said, yes, these young men can grow up to be senators, House of Representatives, governors, mayors because that's what our our government does we debate with each other we debate i'm right and you're wrong about immigration taxes abortion anything you want i'm right and you're wrong okay why don't you teach people to listen why isn't listening just as important as debating and the answer is we don't teach listening you know we don't you know we we taught debate for years. We've taught speech class for years, but we don't teach listening. So when I, from Harvard to Stanford to Charlotte Latin, to John Burroughs School, when I asked education, why don't you teach listening? Branchers, we don't. They, they don't say why, but it is the, in our journey, this last 15 years, and now getting kind of international recognition for it. It is the single biggest thing we've learned. It is the single greatest human skill that leads to the relationships everybody wants, which is to be heard. And that's teachable skill that we can start with young people and work up. So right now we're trying to fix adults who wish they had known this when they were younger so it affected their marriage and the way they raised kids. So now we're trying to get into education, to, to change education, to give them human skills along with technical skills so we can start creating leaders of the future who have both as a, whether in the military, the government, healthcare, or business, that they have the capacity to be leaders. Because we can't ask today's leaders to do this. It's like asking them to speak Chinese. It is such a different language of listening than, than, than management, okay? That it is we, we gotta teach them. We gotta, it, it, nobody because yeah, nobody debates it with me. Not the head of Bank of America, not the head of Ernst & Young, not the head of Walmart, nobody debates what I just said with you. They just don't know how to go from here to there. Yeah. Maybe you can take it, Rosie. <laughs>
0: we'll see. You know, I who knows, who knows?
1: Thomas Friedman nailed it, okay? Yep. Rosie, the uh, pandemic has forced us into behavior patterns that are different. And, you know, it's been long enough now that we're uh, kind of trying to learn from, uh, for example, I would fly around the country and have listening sessions where I'd sit down with our team members and say, here's what we believe in. How are we doing? And it was incredible. And by going to Chicago or South Carolina, or, you know, and I'd have it with the plant. Well, right now we don't do that. You know, We don't fly around and have that interaction. And uh, so I was having with Simon Sinek a Zoom meeting with a bunch of these CEOs. And I thought, shit, we could have a, rather than just the people in Chicago, Just be, if I did a Zoom meeting, I could connect with uh, Hamburg, Germany, India, China. And so we started having these, I'll call them listening sessions With Zoom, and because 80% of all communication is nonverbal, and Zoom gives you the video, we are having unbelievable conversations without anybody getting on any planes and any hotels, without being away from our families and connecting more than we ever did because now people are not just connecting with people in their plant, they're connecting with people they work with around the world. And it's it's actually, so, you know, uh, from all... Bad things can come. Some good things, yeah. Just, That's awesome. So yeah, I well, could talk
0: I, to you. I could talk to you all day, but what <laughs> I but I want to um well, it's so good to reconnect. But but um I'm I'm ending the podcast with a set of some quick questions uh, for okay. every guest, just to like okay. kind of rapid fire style, if you're up for good. it. And okay, awesome. So the first is going to be a fill in the blank. So fill in the blank for you, living authentically is
1: caring for others.
0: Love that. And I I see that all the time in everything you do. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do?
1: I my the word I would use is be present and listen. Every situation yeah. is a situation for personal growth. We just yep. need to be fully present. Okay. Yep. We don't always need to be the leader, but we need to be fully present.
0: Absolutely. Love that. Love that. When's the last time you were courageous and how did you show up?
1: Probably um, the one that I think will resonate most with your listeners is in 08, 09, um, when we were faced with the biggest economic challenge that, we, that our country has seen the economic downturn, where people, generally, like everybody was just, stock market crash, people were getting laid off. And I walked into our board meeting. In um, January of '09, like four months into the crisis, and my board said to me, "Don't you need to lay off people?" I said, "Why do you say that?" Said, "Well, everybody's laying off people. Don't we need to lay off people?" I said, "No, I don't think we do. I think I, I think we can get through this." That was an act of courage because my, you know, everybody, you know, our orders dropped by 30 percent. Simon Sinek talks about that decision we made. All but we made it because we said we can't hurt people. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to use this to interject to your listeners. Remember, our, our goal is it's about people, purpose, and performance. It starts with our fundamental. The word people is first because our first responsibility is to the men and women in our care, around a purpose that inspires them to share their gifts fully, individually and collectively. And then we have to create human and economic value in doing so to sustain our organization. So um, that that is what's driving people, purpose, and performance, okay? We have to inspire people. We have to focus on people. And we have to create value.
0: Yeah. Love that. What's something people would be surprised to know about you?
1: That I'm an accountant.
0: (laughs) Okay, um, Rosie.
1: The greatest compliment I've ever had was somebody said, "I can't believe you're an accountant." That was the greatest true. compliment I've ever had.
0: I love it. I love it. Okay, so this is like a little icebreaker I like to use, but I call it the four C's. So, if reality was no, um, didn't matter. Uh, if you, what, what's a car that you would own? What country would you love to visit? what cuisine would you love to eat and what celebrity living or dead would you love to eat that cuisine with
1: so car would be an f-150 raptor nice i always tell my kids picture me when i'm gone driving down a country road in a truck going into the wilderness with a little dust coming up behind the truck i love it listen country <laughs> western song what Country would I go to the only country that's on my mind for some reason? I don't know why, so it's just an answering question. Is St. Petersburg, Russia? Mm-hmm. I don't know why, I can't give you a good reason, I've never said it, but uh, I've been particularly touched by the conflict we have with Russia. And yet, emails from Russian business leaders who read my book who want to treat the people respect and dignity. So, I, I have this. Mm-hmm love affair to sit with the country we've had the most c- conflict with in my life and see the beauty of the people in russia
0: hmm. love
1: that. Cuisine, i'd rather have italian food in russia <laughs>
0: <laughs> i love it i love italian food well, and, in- that, and then what celebrity living or dead would you want to eat that cuisine with ronald reagan awesome nice I've always
1: said that uh ronald reagan uh, I have his picture up on the wall before you in my office with his expression. Ronald Reagan believed in the goodness of people, and I would love to sit there. And so that's why I love Ken Edelman who worked alongside Ronald Reagan, because he can give me the uh, intimacy of what Reagan was like because he worked with him for eight years at the White House.
0: Nice, so it's a lot to me. Nice. Your favorite go-to movie?
1: I saw it this weekend. I was crying. August Rush.
0: Mm, nice.
1: Unbelie- I mean, I was crying. It was such a beautiful story. Of, um, um, I mean, just, it's a beautiful story. And just, I love, i sentimental. And it was a, a young man. It was the actor and it was amazing. And, uh, so anyway, August, and that's what pops in my mind, August Rush.
0: Got it. Your go-to song.
1: Tim McGraw, Humble and Kind.
0: Oh, uh, yep. I can see that. Okay, Bob, your signature dance move.
1: (laughs) uh, I don't even know how to describe it. I just move according to the rhythm. I I was on a beautiful yacht with my wife and two young couples that we took with us in Turkey a few weeks ago. And on the last night of this eight-day trip around the coast of Turkey on this 140-foot yacht, uh, we put a boom box out on the deck and the people, the crew from Turkey played scream and shout. Uh, <laughs> and we were dancing our tail off on the front deck of this boat.
0: I love it. I, love I don't even it. know what
1: I call it other than I was moving to the rhythm of the song.
0: You were flailing around. It's all awesome. yeah, right, right. We'll call it the flail, the Bob flail. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, in another life, your job or career would be
1: I have to say doing exactly what I'm doing now. I can't imagine, but I always say I have the best job in the world and, and uh, it has evolved beyond my imagination, the impact we can make in the world through leadership. So I can't imagine anything I would rather do than what I get to do now, which is be a symbol of hope for so many people in the world.
0: Yeah, I remember- that's awesome.
1: Rosie, over Christmas holidays, I got an email uh, from a CEO of an ex- executive of a company in Russia, and they bought a big machine from our Wisconsin operation. He sent me a picture of him standing in front of this big machine that he bought from us in Wisconsin, but he was holding a copy of my book, Everybody Matters. Hmm. He subsequently told me that during, when the pandemic hit, based on my book, he decided he was not going to let anybody go with his plan with the pandemic issue. Wow. um, That's important.
0: Something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy?
1: Uh, Knowing that I'm touching the hearts of my grandchildren. Hmm. I always say I can't be with my grandchildren forever, but I can be in their hearts forever.
0: Love that. And last, what are you grateful for right now?
1: That's the easiest question you've asked me. That some higher power has blessed me, this accountant from Ferguson, Missouri. With a message that could profoundly change the world, and I have to say to you, why me
0: that's so awesome, oh my gosh, well, thank you um so much for everything you've done and how you've inspired me and in fun to catch
1: up with you again
0: yeah <laughs> so,
1: uh, so it's
0: good Thank you so much, oh, Bob. I so appreciate it. Thank you, it. Rosie.
1: And now the burden is on you. Too much is given, much is expected. Now, how do you convert this into a message that will resonate with the world? Okay, young lady. Yep,
0: I, I accept. I accept. Okay, it. accept it, okay. challenge. All right, Thanks. thank you. Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for listening to Show Up as a Leader. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com, where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading, and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. You can also find me on LinkedIn at rward, Facebook and Instagram at drrosieward, or email me at rosie at drrosieward.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never, ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone.